The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, anybody need pens? I'm going to set them right up here on this chair. If you need a pen, you can keep it. If you don't need a pen, you can put it back when you're done. It's your choice. That will be my gift to you if you want it. You're welcome. Oh, that's the Holy Spirit, just so you guys know. Sometimes it's thunder, sometimes it's low reverb or uh, feedback. <clears throat> All right. So forgive me, I have to switch mental gears here from leading worship to teaching. Um, so uh, how's everybody doing tonight? Yeah? You guys excited for Exodus? Okay, we're all going to leave. That's the exodus. We're all going to go to McDonald's. Uh, no, never mind. Um, okay, cool. Let's, uh, let me just, just say a couple things, and then we'll, we'll dig right in. We got, <laughs> we got a lot to do tonight, so um, we need to get to work pretty, pretty quickly. But for those of you guys that um, haven't been to one of these yet, um, we just started this series two weeks ago, so you're not missing much. Um, but this is an Old Testament overview. Uh, which, what that really means is that we're going to cover a lot of ground uh, really quickly. Uh, we're basically taking a 30,000 foot view uh, of the Old Testament scriptures. We're just going to fly really high and really fast. Um, and there's a few reasons that we're doing that. Um, first of all, we really value the Old Testament um, at Heritage. Like we see that it is uh, actually, I don't know if you know this, but it's part of the Bible. In fact, three fourths of the Bible is probably Old Testament. Pretty important, pretty big deal. And, and we really wanted to um, give you guys kind of a big picture view of God's really redemptive plan for, for mankind uh, throughout the Old Testament. So that's, that's one big reason that we're doing it. Um, the reason that we are, uh, the reason we're doing it the way that we're doing it uh, is because uh, sometimes you get kind of stuck in the weeds with reading the Bible. You crack open, uh, you know, First Kings, and you read about, you know, some war or some crazy thing, and, and uh, you're not really sure how does that apply to my life. What we're hoping to do uh, with this series is kind of help you guys get out of the weeds a little bit of some of what the Old Testament says and, and get really perspective on what the entirety of the Old Testament says. And I think in doing that, you guys are going to actually be benefiting in your Bible reading at home. Um, and my desire really is not to unpack everything in these books to you guys. It's really just to whet your appetite in hopes that you'll go home and read it for yourself and get into the, the really the meat of some of these stories. Um, but here's the thing. The Old Testament is a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and a lot of people have a hard time with the Old Testament. A lot of people get um, frustrated or confused with the Old Testament. But um, imagine this. Imagine if, uh, you know, you had a five or six-year-old son and he sees you go, go to vote uh, for the, the, the presidency, which I know is a scary, scary thing coming up because um, we have no good candidates. Uh, anyways, so he goes, I'm sorry, that was political. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you guys all know it's true. Um, you, you're going to the voting office or whatever it's called. You're going to, the, you're going to vote and uh, your, your son asks you, you know, mommy or daddy, why are you, why are you voting? Um, and you could sit them down and, and briefly in a couple sentences, you could say, well, you know, Billy, uh, I'm going to vote because it's my privilege as an American that was purchased for me by, um, you know, our forefathers and past generations. And so I get to do that. And uh, little Billy would be like, okay, cool. Now, is that true? Yes. Um, is it really drive home the reality of what it is that we get to vote in our country. No. Now, if you sat down and you walked little Billy through the history of America in a fun way and you said, but look, we used to be these colonies um, under England, England, and there was taxation without representation. And then we had this war where, where hundreds of people sacrificed their lives. And we've literally, I mean, all of these people have died and all of this has been sacrificed just so that I can go and I can vote. That truth just became so much more powerful because the backstory of what it took to get to that truth really exemplified and really, really held up that truth in, in a much greater way. And so that's what the Old Testament is. Sometimes we, we get in the New Testament, we look at a verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Is that true? So true. Can you read that on its own and it be beautiful and powerful? Absolutely. But when you read that verse through the understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, it takes on a power that will change you. 
okay? Because you got to understand that there is thousands of years of history um, of mankind struggling and suffering and being disconnected from the love of God in so many ways that when you see that now through Christ we're reunited with God, the Old Testament really is the hammer that drives the nail of the New Testament right into your heart. Does that make sense? And I have been overwhelmed. And let me tell you, trying to figure out how to teach a whole book in an hour is not easy. <laughs> I have been overwhelmed as I've been just swimming in Old Testament scripture. Uh, when I get into the New Testament scriptures, I'm just like, wow, this is so much more powerful now that I get the whole story. I mean, imagine if, if you, you, you sat someone down that had never seen the movie and just watched the ten, last 10 minutes of Lord of the Rings, you know, and Samwise is carrying Frodo up the hill. You'd be like, okay, you know, this is an emotional scene, but I don't know why. Uh, the person who spent 10 hours of their day watching the grueling, you know, hour after hour of them trying to get the ring up to, to, to Mordor would be much more touched by that moment, right, when that ring actually gets up and gets cast into the mountain. And I think that's really the beauty of the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's, it really makes the New Testament so much sweeter. So that's why we're studying it. Uh, and and the, the way we're studying it is because we're trying to just give you guys a big perspective. So uh, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to dig into the book of Exodus. You guys excited? You guys sound so excited. I am just pumped. Um, <laughs> I'm excited. I've been waiting all week to unpack this for you guys. Father, we... Uh, Approach this book with great reverence, Lord. We, uh, we see your, your powerful hand um, working in every story in this book, God. And Lord, um, I feel inadequate. I feel that the time is inadequate, um, God. But if by the Holy Spirit, you could just reveal to us uh, your grace through this book, Lord. Um, we just want to worship you tonight, God. We want to see your hand. We want to see your love. We want to see your power in the book of Exodus. And God, help us to, to understand it in a, in a new light even. Um, and, and Father, we just truly need you tonight to, to speak and to be our teacher. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. If you guys got this orange paper, um, picked out the color myself. Thought it was pretty great. It's not even Halloween yet, but whatever. Um, I was trying to pick a different color for each one of these so that when you guys compile them, if you do that, um, you'll kind of know. This is going to be something for you guys just to, to kind of take notes as you go. Um, I'll reference it here or there, but you'll notice that the questions on here are, are kind of questions that I'll be answering at some point. Don't focus too much on this. It's not meant to be like a classroom. <laughs> like, you're not going to get graded on it. Um, if you don't want to do this, that's totally fine. Uh, but if you want to follow along, answer some of the questions, it might be a great thing to keep and kind of compile as we go through this series. And hopefully you guys will have a rad resource by the end um, as you study and read the Bible. So, um, you can kind of follow along with me on that. The, the, really, the, the way we're attacking and approaching these books is simply this. First, we're going to talk about the theme of the book. Okay, what's the big picture of the book of Exodus? Then we get into the historical context. That's kind of the nuts and bolts. Uh, you know, who wrote it? When did they write it? Why did they write it? Those kinds of things. Then we get into the narrative content, and that's where I'm going to, without hopefully passing out from lack of oxygen, try to explain to you guys the entire book of Exodus in five minutes, which won't happen. And then uh, lastly, the redemptive sequence, which is where we say, where is Jesus in this book? Does that make sense? That's where we're going. Hopefully you guys uh, can all kind of stay on board and track with me as we dig into it. So Exodus, you guys got it? You got it open? I'm not going to read a lot out of it because I just don't simply have time, but verse Eight of chapter one, as far as I see it, is the actual opening line of the book. Verses, you know, one through seven is, is some genealogy and some, some explanation. But really, verse eight is the opening line of the book of Exodus. And you can tell a lot about a book of the Bible by the opening line, okay? It, like last, last week or two weeks ago, when we looked at the book of Genesis, it was in the beginning God, okay? And that really, for us, set the tone. Like it explained the entirety of the theme of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis was the book of beginnings, the beginning of God creating man, the beginning of man uh, introducing sin into the world, and the beginning of God's redemptive story. That's what we looked at in that. And now here, here we are in Exodus, the next, the next book in the story. And it opens like this in verse, uh, in verse 8. It says, now there arose a new king. Okay, can you guys all say that with me? Now there arose a new king. That sentence right there encapsulates the theme of the entirety of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is largely a book about man being ruled in slavery. Okay, man being ruled in slavery. Right off the bat, the author of Exodus says, there was a new king that ruled over the people of Israel. It sets the tone really for the entire theme 
of the book. Man being ruled in continual slavery. Now, really, the entirety of the Bible is a story about man being ruled, okay? Uh, In the beginning, in Genesis, if you remember, man was in the garden with God, and man was ruled by God directly, was he not? He was under God's rule. And then in Genesis 3, when man ate the fruit, what did he do? He stepped out of the rule of God and put himself into his own rule. And from that moment forward, man has placed himself into perpetual slavery, That moment in the garden, in Genesis 3, Adam started a legacy of slavery that you and I are still living out till today. And Exodus is probably one of the greatest books to illustrate that truth. At that moment in the garden, man forsook the freedom of God's rule. He forsook the freedom of being under God's rule in the garden and said, I will rule myself. And because of that, he became a slave. Well, a slave to what, you might ask? What did Adam become a slave to? What are we all slaves to? Well, basically anything and everything. We are slaves because we have removed ourselves from God's rule. We have become slaves to just about anything and everything that would rule us. It's created a vacuum in our heart where something will fill it. Okay, so everyone in this room has a propensity to be a slave to something in this world. Uh, For for some people, uh, it's slaves to other men. For some people, it's slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to self, uh, selfishness, greed, lust, pride, death, uh, slaves to poverty, slaves to depression, slaves to illness, uh, slaves to to whatever it is. All of us ultimately are ruled, um, apart from Christ, we are ruled by something. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, okay? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What Jesus is saying is, there's no gray lines. There's no, I'm kind of a Christian. There's no, I sort of serve Jesus. There's no, yeah, he's okay. Uh, I like him. I'll put him in my junk drawer of things in my life. That's not how it works. Jesus says, you have the, you have the ability to serve one master, and it's either Jesus or something else. Does that make sense? And what happened in the garden was Adam said, I will not serve you. You're not my master. So now Adam and everyone in his legacy, which is you and I, are now slaves to anything and everything that would rule us. Okay? And this is the state that we find the children of Israel in Exodus, in slavery. The book of Exodus opens with this vivid story of mankind's slavery. You guys are probably familiar with it, um, but I'm going to pretend like you've never heard it in your life, okay? Because more than likely, we take it for granted. We've heard it in Sunday school, but we need to understand the magnitude of this story. Now, just a quick outline. I'm going to put this on the screen because I really didn't want to lose you guys here. Um, here's, the, here's the outline that, that I want to, to use as we go through this. Um, chapters 1 through 15 are the slavery to Pharaoh. Okay, so slavery to Pharaoh and redemption through the exile. Not only are we going to see that God, uh, not only are we going to see man in slavery all through this book, we're also going to see how God redeems man out of slavery. So chapters 1 through 15, slavery to Pharaoh. If you want to write that down, that'd be great. Then chapters 16 through 19, this is a big book, by the way, okay, 40 chapters. 16 through 19 is slavery to unbelief. Chapters 20 through 31, we see man in slavery to sin. Okay, so we have slavery to Pharaoh, slavery to unbelief, slavery to sin. And lastly, chapters 31 through 40, slavery to false worship. Okay, um, I know that sounds scary and dry and that's an outline and that's terrible, but that's going to help us be our guide through this book, looking at this really legacy of man's slavery. But God is in the business of redemption. The first time we see the word redemption is actually in the book of Exodus. Uh, The story of redemption weaves all the way through the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Uh, But Exodus is one of the most vivid and clear pictures of God redeeming man from his state of slavery. On your sheet, I have on there the whole book of Exodus in one sentence. Are you guys ready for it? You can write it down if you'd like. It's going to be on the screen. The book of Exodus in one sentence is the slavery of men and the redemption of God. The slavery of men and the redemption of God. If I had to choose one sentence to describe the book of Exodus, that's what it would be. So let's get into some nuts and bolts real quick, and then we'll get into the story. When was this book written? Okay, 15th century BC. That's 
1,500 years, uh, give or take 50 or so, uh, about 450, I should say, years before Christ. Okay, do a little math. That's 3,500 years ago. Okay, long time ago. The setting for the book of Exodus is actually not in Palestine. It's not in Canaan. It's not in Israel. It's actually in a foreign land. Uh, It's in Egypt. Okay, and one thing that I love about the Old Testament and really love about the Bible, I'm kind of a history buff, um, not because I know a lot about it, because it's interesting. Um, One cool thing about the Old Testament is it literally allows you to have this, this view into all of these cultures outside of Israel. Because Israel was constantly captured by either, you know, Egypt or Rome or, or, or uh, um, Persia or any of the number of world ruling empires that conquered Israel. We get to see all of these different uh, cultures and things. So really Exodus doesn't take place in the promised land as they will end up there. It actually takes place in Egypt, a foreign land south of the area where Israel would have been. And this book takes place in the 18th dynasty of Egypt. Uh, that means nothing to us. But what that does tell us is it tells us a little bit about the um, position or, or the amount of power that Egypt had at that time. The 18th dynasty of Egypt was literally, it was like one of the heights of Egypt, okay? So they're rocking it. Their economy's good. They're powerful. They have a huge army. The pharaoh, the first pharaoh that we see in the beginning of the book of Exodus was actually compared to, historians compare him to Napoleon, Okay, he was, he was he constantly conquesting, expanding the borders of the, the nation of Egypt. Okay, he was also a tyrant. He was a terrible man, as we'll see, did terrible things. But he was a powerful man. He was known as the one that expanded the boundaries of Egypt uh, in influence. That's really the setting that this book is taking place in, in ancient times. Uh, it's pretty well known that Moses is the author. No one really debates that. Uh, Acts chapter 7 uh, in the New Testament tells us that uh, Moses was well-educated, having been raised in Pharaoh's house, so he would have been more than capable of writing the entirety of the Pentateuch, including Exodus. Uh, I know this is a lot of nuts and bolts. Just bear with me. Uh, the title of Exodus comes from the Greek Septuagint, uh, and it basically just means to exit, okay? It's the Exodus. They left. They took off from the land of Egypt. Um, the genre, you guys can write all these down. I got a little blanks in there for you. The genre of Exodus um, is really twofold. Um, Exodus is, is a big book, and the first half of it is all narrative. It's all stories. It's the story of the Exodus. And then the whole second half of the book, really uh, chapters 19 through 40, uh, are all law. Okay, it's God explaining uh, laws and commandments in the pattern for the tabernacle, as we'll see. So the genre is twofold. It's narrative and it's law. And lastly, who was this book written to? Uh, the audience, if you will. So the audience of this book would have been Israel. It would have been the children of Israel. Um, Moses would have penned it so that God's people would not forget God's heart to redeem. And here's what I love about this. I'm, I'm about, in a minute, I'm about to just take you guys through the whole book of Exodus, and hopefully you'll be awake when we're done. But here's what I love about this, is that the Jews didn't always get a chance to write things down. In fact, it was very rare to have the materials to write things down. So the primary way that Jews actually, uh, all throughout history, communicated their history was orally. They spoke it. Okay, they told their kids and their kids told their kids and their kids told their kids. And you might say, well, that seems kind of inaccurate. You'd be surprised how amazingly accurate Jewish history is. I mean, it it far exceeds almost any culture in ancient history, um, just how accurate it is. But basically what would happen is um, every Passover feast, Jews would sit down with their kids and they would begin to explain and unpack the story that we're about to read in the book of Exodus. And it would be exciting. It would be something they would look forward to. and, And it would just literally be something they said out loud. Not like everybody, you know, back in ancient um, Israel had their own Bible, okay? Uh, Not everyone even had, uh, not a lot of cities even had their own scrolls or their own copies of the scriptures or their own Torah. Those were kept in sacred places um, and read by the priests and the prophets and such. So really it was up to like the fathers and the mothers to to just expound and explain the stories of of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. And that's kind of what we're going to do tonight because I don't have time to read the whole thing. So that's kind of exciting. Now... Narrative content. So what is in the book of Exodus? Once again, we're looking at this book through the lens of slavery and redemption. Now, the first chunk of Exodus, chapters 1 through 15, slavery to Pharaoh. This is where we see the story that you guys are more than likely totally familiar with. That you've seen the prince of Egypt, which is 
you know, not really all that accurate, or you've seen, you know, whatever movie, or you've heard the stories before, but one through 15 is kind of the story that we all know and love of the book of Exodus. So we'll take a little bit more time on that. Now, Genesis left off. You guys remember if you were here last week um, or the week before, Genesis basically left off with this lineage of the sons of Abraham. Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those was Joseph. Joseph traveled into the land of Egypt. If you remember, he became a mighty man in the land of Egypt. Um, And because of famine, Joseph's brothers traveled down to Egypt and ended up living and taking residency in the south, south of Israel in Egypt. Now, time passed. And as it says in the beginning of the book, a new king took over. And guess what? This new king didn't remember Joseph. He didn't care that Joseph was a mighty man, an honorable man. All he knew was that now there's this people group, this foreign nation of immigrants, if you will, that is living within the land of Egypt, that is not from Egypt, that is now multiplying greatly, okay? I mean, they are like fertile myrtle. They are like kids all over the place. They're just multiplying, and guess what? They're strong, they're smart, they're intelligent. Why? Because they're blessed, because they're God's people. So they're flourishing, they're growing. And Pharaoh, the terrible one, the one who was, you know, compared to Napoleon, who basically wanted to take over the world, right? He sees this and he says, this is a threat. Okay, I can't have this happening. So really the first chapter of Exodus unpacks this story about how Pharaoh says, you know what, I'm gonna gonna, uh, do whatever I have to do to make sure that they don't grow too powerful and end up siding with our enemies and, and rising up against us. So Pharaoh decrees that every boy of Israeli birth, um, every boy that was a Jew would be thrown in, cast into the river and killed, which is terrible. Um, Similar a little bit to what Jesus was born into, isn't it? Kind of interesting. So many parallels um, in this book, and I'm going to try not to (laughs) get distracted by everyone. But what I love about the book of Exodus is that it starts with the baby. It doesn't start with Russell Crowe and his sword drawn being a stud, you know, and and just like slaying hundreds of people. It starts with weakness. It starts with the weakness of man. It starts with the oppression of man, much like the gospels do, right? Jesus born into this horrible scene where where Herod is, is killing babies. It's exactly the same thing. Pharaoh is killing babies, oppressing the Israelites. They're slaves, Pharaoh's kingdom is being built on the backs of slaves. And Moses, this baby, is born into this oppressive situation. And he is really the central figure, the central character to the book of Exodus. But it starts with a baby. It starts in weakness. And I love that because that's how God works. He takes things that seemingly are not powerful and he does mighty things with them. Now, Moses doesn't have a great start. He's born probably at one of the worst possible times that he could be born. Because guess what? They're casting these boys into the river and killing them. Now, Moses, born into uh, an, an Israeli family, his mother looks at him and says, you know what? I cannot cast my baby. I can't get rid of him. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put him in a basket. I'm going to float him down the river and he's in God's hands now. And he literally was in God's hands. God had plans for Moses, okay? God in his supernatural sovereignty saw uh, and and had his hand on that basket and made sure it flowed where it was supposed to flow. And it just so happened to flow into the house of the very man that would have him killed, which is ironic. One of Pharaoh's daughters sees the basket. She picks it up. She sees the baby. She instantly thinks, I got to keep this baby. Here's where it gets really funny. Pharaoh actually hires the baby's actual mother to raise the baby, which is funny because you know God just did that. God's like, oh, I'm just going to make sure that that actually happens, um, which, is, which is super, super hilarious. So God spares Moses. Um, he has plans for Moses. Moses grows up in this house of Pharaoh. So he would have grew up with affluence. He would have grown up with, with um, lots of, of schooling. Um, he would have been a man that was, that was well-educated. Um, but there's a turning point that happens in Moses' life early in the book. And that is where he realizes at a certain point in his life that he's two people. He realizes he's conflicted. Because on one hand, he is this son of Pharaoh living in Pharaoh's house. On the other hand, he is also this Jewish boy. He's also this is this. Um, Israeli. He's one of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph's descendants. And so he doesn't quite know who he is. 
And then without even thinking about it, one day he sees uh, an Egyptian beating uh, one of his people and he springs into action and kills the Egyptian. Okay, Um, that's where everything kind of went south for him. (laughs) Things didn't go well from that point. And the news spread quickly to Pharaoh, uh, who, of course, uh, sought to kill Moses. So Moses ran for his life out of the comfort and the warmth of, of where he was probably living at the time into the wilderness where he would live out sort of the second chapter of his life. You could look at Moses' life in three big chunks. His life there uh, in Pharaoh's house, his life in the wilderness, and then, as we'll see, his life with leading Israel's, uh, the people of Israel. So he's in the wilderness. There he meets his wife. He starts a family. He really just starts to live a very humble and a very simple life. Can we pull his doors shut? Um, very humble and a very simple uh, life from that point. And here's what I love. Listen, here's what I love. Is this is the point that God calls Moses. Okay, not when he's a stud, riding around in chariots, you know, uh, you know being educated in, in the house of Pharaoh. Not when he's a man of position or a man of greatness. That's not when God calls him. It's actually when he's at his lowest. It's when he's in exile. It's when he's... He, he, he's uh, running for his life and and took up one of the lowliest jobs you could possibly have, which is to be a shepherd, okay? He's watching sheep. How much skill is involved in that, I don't know, but it's a humble job. And this is the place where God first reveals to Moses his plan of redemption for God's people. Um, You guys, I'm not gonna say that. I keep wanting to say you guys know the story. I don't wanna say that because maybe you don't. Um, Moses is out in the wilderness. He sees this bush that's, that's burning, but yet is not being burnt. It's a self-sustaining source of fire, which is an amazing picture of God. Um, and this bush calls out to Moses. And basically, uh, this is the point where Moses first meets God. He introduces himself as the, 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 the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, um, Moses is freaked out, obviously. And as God begins to tell him his purposes of redemption for these slaves that are back, still back in Egypt, uh, Moses resists it. He's like, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, he he p- p- pulls out some, some story about how he can't talk and he's not eloquent and I'm not the right one to be the mouthpiece of God and, and you know, I can't do it. And God says, it, God gets frustrated with him and he says, I'll tell you what, I will equip you for this calling. I will give you the tools that you need. And I love that, okay? When God calls us to something, he gives us the tools that we need. He equips us with the strength that we need to do that calling. So, God gives Moses uh, this staff. He says, this will represent my power. And he sends him with Aaron to, to sort of be, you know, a, a little bit of, of comfort and uh, to help him get through this calling. So God equips him. Moses and Aaron, they, they head back into Egypt once again, where they uh, have an audience with, Egypt, uh, with Pharaoh and they say, okay, here's the deal. This God that you've never heard of, even though you guys have thousands of gods here in Egypt, this God that you've never heard of, he's basically demanding through us that you let all 600,000 of my people go into the wilderness, okay? Uh, And as you can imagine, Pharaoh probably laughed at him. Uh, He said, no way. So Moses is like, well, watch this. Throws down his staff and God turns it into a snake. Pharaoh looks at him like, are you kidding me? I mean, I have people that can do that. You know, Pharaoh's not impressed. He's not impressed at all. In fact, he's insulted to the point where he actually increases now uh, the, the load of work that, that is on the back of the slaves in Israel. So it didn't go too well. So Moses goes back to God. God sends him back again. And this time Moses says, look, Pharaoh, this time God is really gonna let you have it. <laughs> A series of 10 plagues happen, um, one after the other. The Nile River turns into blood, frogs covering Egypt. Um, He turns the dust um, in Egypt to gnats, causes swarms of flies to come over into the houses of Pharaoh. Um, God strikes Egypt's livestock with disease, creates festering boils on uh, the humans and the animals, sends thunder and hail and fire that destroy crops, sends swarms of locusts that cover Egypt and sends darkness Uh, that can be felt. And after every one of these plagues, Moses goes to Pharaoh and basically says, okay, do you tap yet? Do you give? Okay, you've seen my God's power. You've seen what he can do. And every time Moses' heart is hardened. So the last 
plague comes, and this one is the most severe of all. God says, I'm going to take the firstborn of everyone in every house of Egypt. Okay, can you imagine? Which is sort of ironic when you look at what Pharaoh was doing to the people of Israel, right? This really would have been super random because not only did God say that he was gonna do that, but then he threw Moses to the Israelites. He says, but here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to basically throw a dinner feast, okay? I want you to slay a lamb for each house, one for each house. I want you to take the blood of the lamb, uh, which would have been totally random at that time. I want you to spread it on the doorposts, and that's going to represent that you are my people and the death angel that's gonna come and kill this firstborn is gonna pass over those houses. And then I want you to eat the lamb. I want you to have a feast. I want you to celebrate, basically. Okay, so super random. They do it. Sure enough, the death angel comes, takes the firstborn of everyone in there, except for anyone that had the blood over the door, which is an amazing picture of Christ that we don't have time to get into. Um, And Pharaoh relents. Finally, Pharaoh relents. After the shedding of the firstborn's blood, our enemy relents, right? And he says, okay, I can't take it anymore. I can't handle this anymore. Get out of here, go. So he releases literally six, at least 600,000 of these Israeli people into the wilderness. Uh, They plunder the Egyptians' wealth so that they have some treasure and they're on their way. Now, God guides them, leads them, at this point, through the wilderness, a uh, cloud by day, a pillar of fire, literally, by night. And back in Egypt, Pharaoh is sitting on his bed or whatever uh, and starts to think about it. And he says, am I crazy? What am I doing? There goes 600 of my best slaves. And he gets in his chariots and they begin to chase after to retrieve these 600,000 Israelites that are now wandering into the, the, the wilderness following um, God's leading. God leads them specifically into probably one of the worst possible places. He leads them geographically into a place where they're surrounded by mountains and their back is literally to the Red Sea, which the Red Sea is big, okay? It's big. So God takes them strategically to like the worst possible place that he can. And here comes Pharaoh back to get them and they're freaking out, (laughs) okay? They don't know what to do. Why would God take them to such a, a terrible place, when it seems like the worst possible situation, God comes through in his power. He actually parts the water in the Red Sea, which is amazing. This is epic scene that you can imagine as they're going through all of the uh, environmentalists are like worried about catching the fish and throwing them back in the water because, you know, they don't want them to, <laughs> that's a joke. Um, I was thinking about that the other day. I was like thinking if it was nowadays, all the people that drive Priuses would be like throwing fish back in the, like, no, nothing against Priuses. Um, Anyways, God parts the sea. Sorry, just so much content, I had to make a joke. Okay, Um, God parts the sea. They get to the other side, and after seeing God's faithfulness, they literally begin to worship God. They have this huge worship service, um, and they say, okay, we're in. God's powerful. He just parted a sea for us. Uh, We're gonna follow him. He's our king. He's our ruler. We're all in. They worship God, and everything seems like it's gonna be okay because God just set them free from their slavery. And you would think at this point that now they would just live happily ever after. Pharaoh's been swallowed up in the Red Sea. Their enemy has been destroyed. The oppressor is gone. Now they're in the wilderness. God's leading them. He's taking them somewhere. He's promised them that he's gonna take them to this amazing land with milk and with honey. And it seems like freedom is here. Is freedom here for them? No, it's not because it turns out that they were slaves in more ways than just to Pharaoh. Okay, so this next, this next chunk, chapter 16 through 19, we see another example of the slavery of man. Not only are they slaves to other men, but we see their slavery to their unbelief. You see, once they get into the wilderness, um, and, and basically just the desert, okay, literally the desert, they begin to think, well, what are we going to eat? Our food's starting to run out. What we packed, we don't have it anymore. They begin to grumble, and literally the chains of their slavery begin to tighten, even though Pharaoh is dead. They begin to grumble over food, and what do you know? God provides. He gives this perfect source of food. This bread called manna begins to rain down from the sky, and it's literally there every day for them. 
okay? He specifically instructs them, don't pick up more than you need, just pick up what you'll eat, okay? And, I, and he did that because he wanted to teach them as a ruler that I will provide for you every day, okay? You don't need to store it up. You need to trust me. You need to believe me that every morning when you get up, there is going to be bread for you because God is a good ruler. He is a good king, but what do you know? Their slavery to unbelief manifests itself. And of course, they store back more food than they were supposed to. And like God said, it began to grow maggots and worms and it was in, inedible. Then they begin to, in chapter 17, they begin to grumble again. Now, remember, God just parted an ocean, okay? God just parted a huge sea, destroyed their enemies. Bread is raining from heaven. Cloud, pillar of fire leading them specifically to a, a very specific place. And they're freaking out because they don't have water now, okay? And so God provides. God provides because he's a good provider. He's a good king. He's a good ruler. He tells Moses, go up to this rock with your staff. Hit the rock with your staff. Only hit it once. And water will pour forth. From that point forward, he said, just talk to the rock. Just speak to the rock and water will come. So now they have a fresh water source. They have food. They have quail. They have everything that they need. Um, God is literally providing for every need that they have, and they literally keep grumbling. They cannot seem to be ruled by God. Even though he's manifested himself physically and tangibly right in front of them, even though he's speaking to them clearly and directly through the mouthpiece of Moses, they still cannot seem to be ruled by God. It's as though they're still slaves to something. God even gives them instruction about Sabbath. He says, hey, on the sixth day, save a little extra bread so that you get a day off. Why did he do that? Because he's a good ruler. Because he knows we need rest. Because he knows we get tired. And what did they do? They did not believe God. <laughs> okay? They, they disobeyed God at every possible chance. God literally says, how long will you dis... Or Moses says, how long will you disobey my commandments? God begins to get extremely frustrated. So we saw man being slave to men. Here's an example of man being slave to his own unbelief. His own inability to believe God. But we also see God as the redeemer. We see God, even though they're grumbling, we see God providing for them, giving them bread, giving them water, giving them quail, giving them leadership, giving them everything that they need. Okay? But still, unable to be ruled by God. He leads them, chapter 19, leads them to this place in the wilderness of Sinai where there's this big mountain. Okay? And this is really a turning point in the book. This is where um, things start to get really interesting, as if they weren't interesting before that. You see, God inhabits himself on the mountain in a form of like thunder and lightning. It's just like this kind of terrifying um, like picture of God being on the mountain of Sinai. And, and God is calling um, his people up to, to hear from them. And, and so they're not going to go. They're not going to do it. So Moses goes up on their behalf. Moses climbed. Can you imagine? I mean, God is like thunder and lightning. This cloud is just like powerful. And, and, and you have to go up because you're Moses and you're the leader. And you've got to climb up that mountain and, and talk to God. And, and for all you know, he's going to smite you dead. Who knows? Okay, this is the story of chapter 19. So he climbs up the mountain. And this is where he begins to have this conversation with God that goes on really for the entirety of the rest of the book. Um, this is where God begins to download to Moses um, plans for this thing called the tabernacle, uh, laws and commandments and all of these different things. He starts by communicating to Moses uh, something that you might have heard of before called the Ten Commandments. Okay, and this was just like the base level, basic, here's my rules. Okay, uh, I'm not going to list them off. Ten Commandments, you can Google them. Okay, you've probably heard of them. Uh, so God downloads these laws. He also gives some specificity on about how they're to worship, how they're to sacrifice, um, social justice, um, personal property, things like this. He says, Moses, now that I've told you these things, here's my covenant that I'm making with you. A covenant is an agreement between God and man, basically. And he says, if you keep my commandments, Moses, you and the people, then I will take you and lead you into this promised land that I've told you about. Okay, and he said, that's the deal. That's the contract. Here's a couple stones with my commandments on them so that you guys don't forget. Now, Mo, head down the hill. Go down and, and, and um, sprinkle blood over the people to sort of solidify this agreement. And then we'll go from there. So God is saying, it's time for me to rule my people. Here's the rules. 
Moses, go down and do it. Now, I want to say something really quick about the law, because we're not going to get into all of them. There's a ton of them, okay? What is the law? Like, what is the purpose that God gave this law to Moses, these commandments, these rules? It seems kind of interesting. There's a few things. You might even write these down. Um, There's a few reasons why God gave the law. Number one is because God is a good ruler, okay? And rulers do what? They rule, (laughs) usually by giving you rules, okay? And rules are for our good, my son is not allowed to touch the barbecue, and he loves to touch the barbecue. But I rule over him and say, no, son, you cannot touch the barbecue because I love him. And God gave some of these rules specifically just because he loved Israel. He said, look, guys, don't eat pork, okay? It's going to clog your arteries, <laughs> okay? And not to mention pork is, holds, some, it holds things that the other meats don't because it's so fatty. Now, today we can eat it for health reasons. It doesn't bother us as much because, but in that time, God was specifically saying, don't eat this meat. It's going to be bad for you. God gave these laws firstly because he wanted mankind to know what was good and what was bad for him. He's a good ruler. The second reason he gave these commands and these laws, this is important, is to reveal his nature. See, this is really the first time that God has started to unpack and unload to mankind who he is. The complexity of literally his nature, the, the things that make God, God. When he says, do not, uh, when he says, do not commit uh, adultery, when he says, do not steal, when he says, do not lie, it's because God is those things. God says, I cannot lie, okay? Uh, God, God is downloading basically his nature through the law so that mankind can understand who their God is, what kind of character he has. And then thirdly, God gives the law to show man that they are slaves to sin. He wants mankind to have a backdrop so that they can understand that they weren't just enslaved to Pharaoh. And they're not just enslaved to their own inability to to, to obey or believe God. But they're enslaved to this thing called sin. And the law allows us to see and allowed the Israelites to see just how much of a slave they were to their own sinful nature. The law revealed that. It showed that. Think of the law kind of like this. It's kind of like pain, like your nervous system. Okay, when I pinch myself really hard, that's my nerves sending uh, communication to my brain that says, hey, if you keep doing that, you're gonna damage yourself. You're gonna hurt yourself. Okay, the law is basically telling us as humans that these things are detrimental to you. Adultery is detrimental to you. Murder is detrimental to you because it goes against my nature, God says. Okay, so it's, it's a good thing. Galatians, Paul says that, that the law was like our schoolmaster, that it instructed us and draw, drew us to Christ, okay? So the law is important. And all of these chapters in Exodus, you can go back and read them. All of that is for those three reasons. God's saying, here's the Ten Commandments because I want you to know what's good and bad for you. Here's the Ten Commandments because I want you to know who I am, what my nature is. And here's the Ten Commandments because I want you to see how sinful you are. I want you to have an accurate assessment and understanding of your flaw as a human being and your, your intrinsic issue that you have in the depths of your heart as a flawed and sinful human being. So after that first account, Moses goes down, comes back up again, and has another interaction with God. And this time, man, God really lays it on him. He gives him all of these plans for this thing called the tabernacle that would basically be this tent where um, God's presence would dwell. Since they wouldn't come up to God in Mount Sinai, God says, I'll come down to them and I'll house myself temporarily in this thing called the tabernacle. Okay, so God gives these intricate and confusing plans that you can read if you'd like. Uh, They're interesting and everything in there is for a reason. Everything in there is symbolic. It's a picture of something. But God downloads these blueprints basically for the tabernacle. And then he says inside of the tabernacle, you're gonna put this box. And this box is gonna be called the Ark of the Covenant. And here's how I want you to make it. He's very specific on everything that has to do with the box. And on top of the box will be this thing called the mercy seat. And this mercy seat is gonna be uh, literally where my presence will dwell. It'll be the holy of holies. And there's all of these blueprints and all of the specificity that God gives to Moses. Um, now, we talked about what the law was for. What is the, what is the, the tabernacle for? Why did God give them the tabernacle uh, specifically? What was, the, what was the purpose? 
the tabernacle was going to be a few things. One, it was going to be a place for the priesthood, which there's so much I need to talk about. The priesthood, this whole tribe of Levi that God said, hey, this tribe out of the 12, you're going to be the one that is called to intercede between God and man. So the tabernacle was the place where the priesthood would go and make intercession between God and man, would make sacrifice for God and man. So the tabernacle was where sacrifices would be made. It's where God's presence would dwell. It's where the Ark of the Covenant would be held. And really what it was is it was to show man uh, his own inability to be in the presence of God. Because you, you see, it, couldn't, it wasn't like, oh, there's the tabernacle. Let's go hang out with God. Okay, only the holiest of the holiest people once they had been ceremonially cleansed and then cleansed again and bathed in certain ways, and once a lamb had been slain, they could go into the tent. But there's different stages, and they had bells tied onto them in case God struck them dead because his holiness and his righteous indignation dwelt over the tent. So if God smote them dead, then they could pull them out, and if the bell stopped ringing, they'd pull. Okay, this was the picture that God said, this is how you can meet with me. Because you are sinful and I am holy, this is the only way that it's possible. And the reason that God did that is because he wanted man to see the grueling, the grueling um, avenue by which he would have to go through to meet with God. I mean, it wasn't easy. In fact, it was impossible. There was no way for man to truly have relationship with God. Even Moses, when he goes back up the hill in the story, he says, God, let me see you. And Mo God says, I can't, I'll kill you. Because I am holy and righteous and you are sinful at your core. Everything that you touch becomes tainted with the blood on your hands, Moses. So he hides them in a rock and he says, you can see the back of me. And Moses comes down and he's glowing, right? He's glowing from the glory and the power uh, of the presence of God. So God gives them this tabernacle so that man can see fully the disconnect that there is between God and man. So we've seen... Okay, just a little recap. We've seen, God, uh, we've seen man's slavery to man through Pharaoh and then God redeeming them. We've seen man's slavery to unbelief and God's redeeming that through provision, right? And through the law and the tabernacle, we see man's slavery to sin. God is showing Israel, you are slaves to sin and to death. And the tabernacle and the law showed us that. And then lastly, um, in chapters 31 through 40, we see this picture of man's slavery to false worship. Okay, not only is man slave to man and man slave to unbelief and man slave to sin and death, but mankind is also slaved to false worship. There's this little story when God is uh, up on the, or when Moses is up on Sinai with God. And meanwhile, down below, um, all of the Israelites start to get antsy. Well, where's Moses? He's been up there for a while. Is he going to come back? If he doesn't come back, who's in charge? Aaron, you're number two. What do we do? And Aaron's like, uh, let's, uh, default setting, pff, false worship. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when your computer freaks out and it goes back and it wipes itself out, it goes back to its default setting, whatever it was programmed originally to do. And because of our sinful nature and because of our, our propensity to slavery, when we freak out and short circuit, we go right back to false worship. Idolatry. Well, let's worship whatever we worshiped in Egypt. Uh, we used to worship gold cows and stuff. Let's do that. Okay, so they take all of this jewelry that they plundered from Egypt, and they melt it down, and they make this golden calf, and they begin to worship it. And Aaron says, behold, he says, get this, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. The audacity. <laughs> When God's presence and thunder and lightning is sitting above Mount Sinai and Moses is up there getting these plans from God and the law and, and God's raining down bread and water's coming out of the rock and the sea was split. The audacity of Arian to say, no, 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 it was this golden calf that we just made out of metal. That's the God that delivered us, right? The audacity of that. But man is slave to our false worship. It's our default setting to worship the wrong God. To worship creation rather than to worship creator. So God says, hey, Mo, you better get down the hill because your sheeple are way off track. Okay? They're way off track, man. You better go straighten them out because the people are down below and they're, they're messing it all up. And God is angry. And Moses is angry. And he comes down and he sees us. He says, what are you doing? And he takes the Ten Commandments and he throws them on the ground and they break in half 
and he's frustrated and God is ready to just wipe them all out. God is like, how are these people so stiff-necked? The depths of their slavery to unbelief and to sin and to death and to false worship is so great that I don't know if I can do anything with these people. And then we see this amazing picture where Moses intercedes, which is an amazing picture of Christ. Moses goes up and he intercedes and he stands in the gap between God and man and he says, Lord, give us another shot. Okay, give us another shot. And God did it. Not because they deserved it, but because God had sworn in his covenant by his faithfulness that he would deliver them. And so in God's patience and in God's unconditional love, he said, okay. He gives Moses another set of 10 commandments. He reinstates, refreshes, if you will, the covenant that he had made with them originally. And they go down the hill some other terrible things had to happen as well. I just don't have time to get into all this stuff. But um, they go down, they make the tabernacle. They begin to go, uh, they begin to, to follow out the plans that God said to worship him through the tabernacle, through the priesthood. And you would think at that point that maybe everything would be better. <laughs> but was man cured of his slavery? No. No, see, that's just the beginning of the story of Israel. Israel's slavery continues. Even though God took out Pharaoh, even though God provided for them, even though God made it very clear how they were to worship them, their slavery continued even on into the stories to come. So that's the book of Exodus, kind of flying over it. Okay, go back and read it because there's so many stories in there that I didn't hit. Um, it, it's just such an amazing, beautiful book. But, but here's really the question. What is the cure for this condition of slavery that we see in Exodus? What is the cure? And, and maybe write this down because this is important. Your definition of freedom will define what you look to deliver you from slavery. Let me say that again. Your definition of freedom, in other words, what you think freedom is, or looks like, will define what you think will get you there, okay? Everyone in the world, whether they admit it or not, they know deep down that they're slaves. They can feel it in their bones, okay? We think we're free as Americans, we're not. All of us, we can feel that we're still slaves to something or someone. But what really matters is the question of well, how do we actually attain that freedom? And everyone has a different answer. I'll tell you what it's not. Okay, I'll tell you what, 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 what uh, the cure for our condition of slavery is not. Are you ready? Number one, it's not political overthrow. Okay, it's not political overthrow. You see, in Exodus, God did that, didn't he? He took out the leader. He took out the king that was evil, the corrupt Pharaoh. He took him out. He swallowed him up with the Red Sea, gone, dead. And you would think that after that, man could be ruled by God, but he couldn't. Because that wasn't what gave man freedom. A lot of people say today, right, if we just had a Christian president, man, if we just had a Christian, uh, you know, Congress and a Christian Senate, if we just had Christian leadership in our country, if we were really a Christian nation, then everything would be good and we would be free. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't, because that will not grant mankind the freedom that he longs for. Okay, if you don't believe me, go to the end of the book in Revelation. Jesus is literally ruling and reigning in the millennium. Jesus is on the throne. He's the king. And mankind still, at some point, rebels from God. Okay, so it doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter who's ruling over us. Mankind's slavery is deeper than that. Much deeper than that. The idea of a theocracy, a people that are ruled by God. Okay, it, it, it cannot happen when we're in the state that we're in right now. I'll tell you what else it's not. Okay, freedom doesn't come, uh, it is not found in provision. A lot of people think, man, if I just had this or had that, I would be free. If I didn't have to work overtime, if I didn't have to work 60-hour weeks, if I didn't have to work three jobs, if I didn't have to live in that neighborhood, if I didn't have to live in this apartment that didn't have AC or whatever it is, then I would be free. But that is not freedom. You're still a slave. I mean, this is the American Western pill that we've swallowed. Okay? That freedom comes through possessions. That freedom comes through position. That freedom comes through comfort. It's the American dream, right? If I have enough stuff, then I'm free. And by the way, the American dream has shifted. The original American dream was, I just want to provide for my family. 
I just want to have enough to put food on the table and have a roof over my head. The American dream now for our generation is I want to have a jet boat. I want a 30, I want a 3000 square foot house. I want to make six figures a year. I mean, the things that we expect to set us free today and that we expect even in my generation to just come by are absurd, right? Can those things give us freedom? No. More money, more problems, right? You can write that down. I just got so gangster on you. It's not even funny. I mean, we, is there anyone more enslaved in, than Americans? Is there anyone in the world more enslaved? We're slaves to money. We're slaves to image. We're slaves to pleasure. We're slaves to leisure. We're slaves to our, our, our identity of position. We're slaves. And we're supposed to be free. This idea that we're the freest people in the world is not true. Because our freedom is not purchased by possessions. God gave the, the, the Israelites everything that they needed and they were still slaves. He gave them everything that they needed and they were not set free by that. You will become a slave to the things that you think will set you free. Are we not slaves to our mortgages? Slaves to our car payments? I mean, it's, it, we become slaves to the very things that we think will set us free. Um, I'll tell you what else it's not. Freedom is not found in rules. A lot of people think, if I obey the rules, if I'm a good person, if I do good things, then I will find freedom. So if I recycle my garbage, if I drive, or if I give to a charity, I drop off my, my clothes at Goodwill, if I give to can drives, uh, if, if I vote, then, then I will find freedom because everything will go good for me in life, okay? Is that true? No. There are a lot of moral people that are, uh, that are non-Christians in this world that are miserable and they're slaves. They're slaves, even though they do good seemingly good things. I'll tell you what else it isn't. Freedom is not found in a religious system. Freedom is not found in a religious system. God gave Israel the, speci the most specific avenue you could possibly imagine for them to worship him. Here's the tabernacle. Here's how long it is. He says it twice even in the book of Exodus. He goes through the plans of the tabernacle twice. Here's how long it is. Here's how wide it is. Here's what you do. Here's how you sacrifice. Here's how you, you worship me. Here's the laws. Don't break this. Don't break this. Don't break this. He couldn't have laid it out more clearly how to have a, a, a religious system with God. Did it set them free? No. In fact, Israel, the Israelites today still think that that system will set them free. They want to build their temple so they can go and worship God again in this sense. But God never intended for the tabernacle or the temple to grant freedom to mankind. It was never supposed to be the fix. But it's not just the Israelites. It's a lot of us. It's a lot of people in this world. There are 1.6 billion people that look to the Muslim religion as their source of freedom. There are another one billion people that look to Hinduism as their source of freedom. There's billions of people in the world that look to some sort of religious system as their freedom, and they are still slaves. Because religion, in the negative sense of the word, cannot grant freedom. Cannot grant freedom. So, why can these things not give us freedom? Because the issue goes deeper than surface. Okay? Said again, this is important. Why can none of those things give us freedom? Because the issue of slavery is deeper than both circumstance and surrounding. It cannot be affected by what's around me. It has to be deeper than that. We have to ask the right question. What are we actually slaves to? What are we slaves to? And the answer is, you ready? We're slaves to ourselves. We are the problem. It flies in the face of everything you'll hear in our culture. You and I are the issue. The issue is not God's provision. The issue is not the law. The issue is not the tabernacle. The issue is not the political system. The issue isn't money or idols or, or, or the sex industry or slavery or any of those things. Those aren't the issue. The issue is mankind, and those are all symptoms. I am a slave ultimately to myself. I'm a slave to myself. And the reason Israel could not have freedom even when they were literally with God and his power in the wilderness was because they were still in bondage and slave in chains to their own self. The heart is the issue. Jesus said, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness. He said, man's heart is the issue that enslaves you. But here's the good news. Here's the good news is that Jesus conquered that slave master on the cross. 
You see, just like God swallowed up Pharaoh in the Red Sea, it says in the scriptures that Jesus on the cross swallowed up death, that he literally became death. He literally became sin so that you and I could finally be free. He paid our debt. But then he didn't just pay our debt. He gave us his position. Then he just gave us his position. He gave us power to live and walk in freedom as Christians and the new covenant. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we literally are empowered every day to walk in freedom with God. Now, how do we become free from the cycle of slavery? You say, okay, Sam, so yeah, I get it. Jesus purchased our freedom. Okay, so I'm free now in Jesus. But what does that look like? Because I don't feel free. Okay, uh, first thing, be reborn. God's whole point is to go deeper than the circumstances, deeper than the position, to the deepest possible issue that could be in your life, and that's your own heart. And what Jesus said, I have to do is, he said, I have to give you a new heart because yours is rotten to the core. You need a new heart. And when I give you a new heart, only then will you be able to be under my rule and reign. Doesn't matter if it's the millennium, doesn't matter if it's the wilderness of Sinai, man cannot be ruled if he does not have a new heart. Man has to be given a new heart, and that's what salvation is. Rebirth. God says, I need to give you a new heart. But then secondly, how do we become free from the cycle of slavery? We be reborn. Secondly, we wear the right yoke. Okay, now I believe this is prophetic for some people in here tonight. Okay, truly, wear the right yoke. What's a yoke? That thing that you put on the ox's shoulders, okay? That, 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 that ox that pulls the cart. Here's what Paul says in Galatians. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Let me say that again, okay? Listen, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul is saying right there as he says, you are free, when you become a slave, it's because you choose to now as a Christian. No one is making you a slave anymore. Christ has purchased your freedom positionally. He's given you into your account credited righteousness. And he's given you the power to conquer over slavery because he did it for you. And now as Christians, we choose whether we are slaves or not. Well, what does that look like? We all have different masters. Okay, We all have our default settings. For some of us, we continually fall back into the slavery of sin, addiction. For some of us, our form of slavery is religion. I just can't get away from this feeling of being ruled by this, this, this idea that I can make my own righteousness. And my question to you guys tonight is just simply this. What are you a slave to? What are you a slave to? And then I want to speak this into your life, this truth that Christ has bought your freedom from that. You hear me? And does that mean it's going to be easy? No. Does that mean you'll never struggle again? No. But positionally, as Christians, we have to own and believe the fact that Christ has set us free. Why? For freedom. To walk in freedom. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't go back to your former master. Don't go back to that false religious way of thinking. Don't go back to that sin. Don't go back to that thing that used to rule you. Own the freedom that Christ has purchased you, purchased for you on the cross. That's the message of Exodus. God is a redeemer and he's purchased your freedom. So what does that look like practically? I would have 30 seconds. It means that Freedom in Christ means it doesn't matter who you're governed by. It doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican or if it's another country or if, if it's Rome or whatever. It doesn't matter because guess what? I'm, I'm free from all that. I'm not, I'm not bound to the American system. I, I submit myself under it because I'm thankful for it and, and God said to, but ultimately I am a child of God. I'm adopted into another kingdom and man, I'm free from that. I'm not bound by any system of man. God, God has given me freedom from that, right? I'm free from external things. Whether God gives me provision or not, I'm free. Because he is my portion. He is my portion. 
I'm free from the law. This is what the New Testament says. I'm free from the law because now it's not about whether I do right or wrong. Christ did right. And he is my portion. And I do right because, I do right because it pleases him and because it's who he is. That's what the freedom that God is talking about. This is the freedom that God wanted for Israel in Exodus. But as Paul said in Corinthians, it's important that we, as the new covenant church, look back and see this story. Because when you look at Exodus, it should make the taste of grace and the freedom that we have in Christ so sweet. When you look back at Exodus and you see the slavery of man, not only to Pharaoh, but to unbelief and to sin and to death and to idolatry and to all of these things, it should remind you of the freedom that we have in Christ. We don't have to go to a tabernacle anymore. The law is written on our hearts. Christ lives within us. We are no longer conquered by sin and death for Christ has conquered sin and death and we walk in his freedom. That's good news. Exodus is the hammer that drives the nail of God's grace that we read about in the New Testament into the depths of our heart, is it not? What an amazing, amazing, amazing book of slavery and redemption. And may it always remind us of the slavery to be found in that world. Say, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm free in Christ, amen? Man, I had so much more, but we're gonna pray and uh, cut you guys loose. Let's, Let's stand really quick. God, may that song that we sang earlier be true, Lord. That we would no longer be slaves to fear. For we are children of God. God, you split the seas so we could walk through them. Not to the promised land, but to heaven. God, you swallowed up not Pharaoh only, but death and sin for us. So that we could have a new heart. A heart that loves you. A heart that serves you willingly. And God, as we wrestle, Lord, would you give us the strength to speak and claim freedom in our lives, that sin no longer has dominion over us, that though we struggle with it, God, we are free in you. Lord, may we walk out of here free men and women, not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus, you did it all. And we believe that tonight, God. So go with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we will see you next week for Leviticus. Party on.